Hey, thanks for tuning in to Hillside Juniata Sermons Podcast, where our goal is to make committed followers of Jesus. We want to encourage you that if you're not already connected to a local church, that you'll find a place where you can connect, grow, serve, and go. But wherever you are today, we hope and pray that God will use this sermon for His glory and our greatest good. Thanks again for tuning in. So we're in Zechariah chapter 14, and in particular, we're in verses 6 through 9. Um, that I want to draw your attention to here this morning as we begin. And Zechariah is writing, and he's writing about the day of the return of Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's what we call the second coming. We'll be talking a little bit more about that and what that means in a few moments. But Zechariah writes, and I want you to just think about these words as we begin. He says, in that day, that day in which Christ will return. In that day, there will be no light and luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is not known, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And then verse 9, he says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. Let's just think about that as we draw our attention to God in prayer this morning. Lord, your word talks about this day. A day where all the lights that we have dependent upon will be gone. But it will still be bright. Because the light of the world will be reigning and ruling. A day when we don't need to worry about divisiveness of nations. Because there will be one king. And his name will be one. Lord, I don't know about the hearts of others, but I know from my heart just reading those words, there is a stirring of both wonder and fear because such a day is just really unimaginable to me. So I ask you, Lord, I ask you today, through your word, through our time in your word, and by your Holy Spirit, O God, to teach us to instruct us, to encourage us, because that is what you mean to do. That's what you meant to do for Zechariah's first readers. That's what you mean to do for us. You mean to encourage us by this. And so help us to see, help us to see Jesus. Help us to see him rightly. Help us to love him greatly. Help us to hope in him with joy 
and expectation as we look forward to that day, Lord. So we ask you to work by your power and for your glory, O oh God. Amen. Amen. So today, as we complete this study in the book of Zechariah, we want to consider an important truth. And I've already spoken a little bit about that, and we read a little bit about it. You see, God desired for the people of Zechariah's time to know this truth, and he desires for us as well to know it. And the truth is this. It is that our victory is a guarantee. That because of the coming king, Jesus Christ, our victory as followers of the Christ is an absolute and eternal guarantee. It's a certainty. And this is, this is a great truth. And, and I, I acknowledge to you, even as I read this passage, and Jody and I were talking a little bit about the passage this week and, and if you read through chapter 14, it can, it's kind of a troubling passage in many respects. But in it is this truth about Jesus Christ coming and ruling as king. And it was meant to encourage both the readers of Zechariah's day as well as us today. And it's kind of hard to imagine that just because it takes our attention right off of the day in which we live. I mean, we live in very difficult days. And the same was true for Zechariah's time. And just to give a little context for this book, in the book of Zechariah, what we have is we have the people who were taken out of the land in about 586 B.C. And they were taken into captivity. They were God's people, but because of their disobedience and their rebellion, they were taken away to a place called Babylon. And there they were put into exile, away from the land of promise and supposedly away from God. But yet God was still at work. And while they're away, God stirs and some of them start to come back. And, and you can read kind of the history of this if you look in the book of Daniel, if you look in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah and of Ezra. You can read some of this history that's gone on. And this group of people come back to the land, and they come back to a land that has been devastated by war. They come back to a land that is in ruin. They come back to a temple that's just a shambles. And this temple was a place where they met with the Lord God. It's a place where they worship God. And they come back, and just the magnitude of the ruin to which they returned would have been overwhelming. How do you set about rebuilding this? Where do you begin? I don't know. I mean, you, you've maybe had an incident in your life where you've stepped into a rebuilding process, and it's like, where do we begin on this? So just the scope of the work was kind of staggering to begin with. But they also stepped back into hostile territory. If you lead, read in the book of Ezra and you read in the book of Nehemiah, they were opposed. The people that lived in the land that they returned to really didn't want them there. As a matter of fact, they, they taunted them and they mocked them. And worst of all, pardon me if there's any here, they sent lawyers after them. I mean, that's just the reality of what was going on. They were trying to slow the process of the rebuild. And so they were meeting this opposition 
And they were trying to figure out what the work is. And they are opposed just by the scope and by their neighbors. And, and I think if we think about it, we can see ourselves a little bit in that picture, right? We're coming to know God's grace and coming to enter into the new and eternal life that God gives us by his grace in Jesus Christ. God's rebuilding our lives, right? I didn't know what eternal life was like. I didn't know what new life was like. And day by day, God is building us in that same thing. But we're still dealing with the old structure, right? (laughs) We're still dealing with our sinful desires. We're still dealing with our doubts and our fears. And we're, we're facing opposition, too, on the outside as well. I mean, there are people that mock you because of your faith. There are people that question you because of what you believe. And maybe there's days when you do yourself. This process of rebuilding and restoring and understanding God's grace is a work that, it's, it's, it's a difficult work. I like uh, what John Piper said. He said this, he said, life is war. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. And if you're growing in grace, if you're a follower of Christ, you know that to be true. Life is war. That's not all it is, thank God. But it is always that. And so enter the words of Zechariah. And enter this truth that we desperately need to take our attention off of our current situation onto the reality toward which we are moving. And that is this, that our our victory is a guarantee. Not because of us, but because of Christ, because of God's grace. And what we see and what we're going to understand is that God has secured his followers with his eternal purpose and his eternal plans God has begun a work, and that is why we say, and we affirm, and we're going to see that our victory is a guarantee. Now, I want to review just a little bit some of what we've learned up to this point. We're in this passage, and this verse that actually is where our theme verse comes from is Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 3. I believe that will come up there, and this is our memory verse, and I want to encourage you to say this with me. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And as we've noticed, as we've gone through these four weeks, that idea of the Lord of hosts, this is the creator's sovereign God. This is the God who is over all things. And what we see in this series, what we've been looking at is that God is the God who restores God is the God who, who can bring about in our lives what we could never accomplish on our own. And so God is at work restoring a people unto himself. In the first week in Zechariah chapter 1, we were looking at this idea that we are to turn back if you have turned your back. And Zechariah begins with that, a call to repent a call to turn away from sin and to walk by grace, pressing in to God and his grace. And then in the second week, we learned that when grace moves in, guilt moves out. We learned that from Zechariah chapter 3. 
And there's this beautiful picture there, which is a picture, I, I know that that week, if you were here, you saw the false hand, and that might be the picture that you remember from this time. But that's, that's not the picture that the Bible gives, and I'd really like to encourage you to look at that, because the picture that the Bible gives is of this priest who had on filthy garments, and instead was given clean garments. Because what we're supposed to do is we're to not dwell in our guilt because of God's grace. Because God's grace brings forgiveness and restoration and hope. And God turns us and he clothes us. Isn't that the neat picture there of Joshua the priest? He not only loses his dirty garments, but he receives new ones and he's recommissioned to serve God. I mean, that's what it means to know God's grace. That's what it means to move past guilt and to press into grace and truth. And then the third week from Zechariah 7, just last week, we were encouraged to be on guard against a heart that is hard. And we're to recognize, we're to remedy a hardened heart. And as I think about that last week, I'm just reminded that all of us are susceptible to that. The moment that we take our eyes off Christ, <laughs> the moment that we quit purposing to know him and to grow in grace, there becomes a hardening of our hearts. And often we're just not aware of it. That's why it's important for us to encourage one another, to open up our lives to one another, to be able to come alongside one another, to encourage that we would we would guard against that hardened heart. Now today in Zechariah 14, again, we're looking at the idea that our victory is a guarantee. And so God, God desires for his people, his followers, to have present and lasting hope. So here in Zechariah 14, God draws our attention to a further time, to an event that is to come, a transition, and, and it's called the second coming of Christ. Now, if you're an old man, as I am, and have spent all your life in church, the idea of second coming, you might have some kind of category to put that in. But if you're not somebody who spent 60 years in church, it's like, what is the second coming and what is the first coming? And so let, let me just encourage you to write this down. And, and I'm just going to give you this as a reference point. It's Philippians chapter 2 that I'd like to turn to just to kind of flesh that out. What is the first coming and what is the second coming, okay? And if you're using a pew Bible and you want to turn there, that's on page 1059. And it, this wouldn't have been originally where I would have gone on this. And this isn't originally how I've seen this taught. But I think these verses capture well the idea of the first and second coming of Christ. And it's here that the writer, Paul, is talking to the Philippians and he's encouraging them to have the mind of Christ. And we pick up in verse 5 of chapter 2 where Paul says this. He says, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And just push the pause button. That's the first coming. And that really describes the first coming of Christ. 
It gives us the details that we need to think about in the first coming of Christ. You could turn to the gospel accounts and read it as well, but here it's kind of encapsulated that here in Jesus Christ, in his first coming, one who was equal with God, because he was very God, became man. And then in that form, as man, he humbled himself and he took the form of a servant. How did he do that? By making himself obedient unto death. Jesus willingly came in his first coming to be the substitute for sinners. To be the servant unlike any others. And he was willing to die in a place of sinners like me and like you. He was willing to take all of the debt of our sin upon himself. And he did that when he went to the cross. Jesus died for my sins. And Jesus died for yours as one who trusts in him. Jesus died for the sins of the world. He bore the penalty of sins. He was, he was not looked upon by the Father. Darkness filled. Jesus did that in his first coming. And he died and then he rose again. Yeah. Amen is right. Because that's the glory of the first coming. We have a risen Savior who's completed everything that needed to be done in that first coming so that we can have relationship with him forever and in eternal hope. So that's the first coming. Now, we pick up again. Here is the second coming. For this reason also, verse 9, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. That's the second coming. When Jesus returns, having completed all that was necessary for our salvation, and he reigns and rules as king, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's the event that Zechariah is going to take us to look forward to, this second coming of Christ, when he will return to rule and reign as king. So let's pick up here in Zechariah in verse, verses 1 and 2, and there in chapter 14. <clears throat> I need to remind myself what the page number is. That's 8855. This is what Zechariah writes. He says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. Would the spoil taken from you will be divided among you? For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. You know, say, Tom, I, I don't know if you noticed, but that doesn't sound like good news. And it doesn't. Except that, except that, it recognizes what we know to be true, and it's this. Sin is devastating. Sin is awful. Sin is horrible. Sin is is present, and we know that within, we see that without. It's all around us. And here's the thing, it doesn't miss the notice of God. 
Sinners will be held accountable. God is coming. Jesus is returning. And justice will be done. That is a necessary part of the good news. Because the reality is, is that we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And the reality is, is the wages of sin is death. There has to be a payment for sin. In his first coming, Jesus paid that debt completely. And now he comes to judge and to rule and to vanquish sin forever. That's a very much and a very important part of this coming day. And we see here also that we have a very real enemy, right? I and mean, we know that. The Bible reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, as you can see up here, be a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then again in John chapter 10 and verse 10, we read this, that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. We understand that Satan is active. And I, I think it's important for us to be very clear about that. But we also need to be clear that Satan is not the only one who opposes us. Write this down and look at this at some point in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 15 through 17. I'm going to read that. I think it's important for us to know because these all work in together against us. In 1 John chapter 2, John writes and says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. There's a remarkable contrast there, but don't necessarily want to draw your attention to that as much as to understand. We do have an active enemy, and it is Satan. But we also are opposed by the world and all that's in the world. The worlds appear, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And you're aware of that. I mean, you, you can't live a day of your life apart from that influence. But what God wants us to know is they are indeed passing away. The lure, the enticement of the world and of our lust, that's passing. What lasts? Or what lasts is the one who loves, who follows God. The one who does the will of God because they've been changed by God's grace. God's love is what endures. And so it's important for us to understand this as we look here because what happens, and if you go back to Zechariah in verse 14 at the end of chapter 2, after what isn't really good news, it seems that way to us, he says, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And here we see the grace of God. God preserves a remnant for himself. I mean, it's always been true throughout the history 
of man, that there have been a people who know God and trust God. God protects them. I mean, we see it back in the Old Testament. We see it on the ark, don't we? We see God taking Noah and his family and preserving a remnant, even as the rest of the world is destroyed. We see that even here in the history that they have at Zechariah speaking to. There was a people that were paying the penalty of their sin. They're removed from the land. Some of them died away from the land of promise, but now some are coming back. And we see it in the New Testament because through that remnant, what? God brings his son, Jesus Christ, who is that son of David. See, God is at work here. And God preserves for himself a people, and he secures them. He secures his saints. He secures them in his grace. And he reminds them right out at the gate that our victory is indeed a guarantee. In verses 3 through 9, what we see is the appearance of our victory. What, what does this victory look like? What is it going to look like when Jesus returns? And he begins to detail that. We read there in verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. I just think it's so cool that that's where God starts. He starts with God fighting for his saints. You realize that. It wasn't just true for them. It's, it's true for us as well. That God is for us. God is altogether for you as his saint, as someone who is trusted in Jesus Christ. God is for you. He fights battles for you. You say, well, Tom, I'm not sure that I, I always see that. Well, I hope that you'll, as we go through this, you'll see more about that. But, but I want you to know that this has been a truth that's been there. If you were to turn to Psalm 27, you might write this down to look at it later. What this sounds like is the psalmist when he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is the light of my life. You know, it doesn't mean that automatically all the foes are gone, but I think you know the truth that at times when you feel opposed... When you turn your attention to God, and when God draws your attention to him, doesn't it, isn't it just like a shaft of light coming in to the darkness of your situation? It may not immediately remove you from it, but you have this awareness, you know what? I am not here alone. The Lord is my light. He is my salvation. And that's where, that's where he starts. He's saying to them, listen, he fights, and our victory is not dependent upon us. This is the really great truth. Our victory is dependent upon him. That's why the psalmist says, whom shall I fear? Right? Whom shall I fear? And Zechariah is drawing attention to, in this passage, he's going to draw attention to, um, to at least five events that are going to be there. They just, he, he, there's many more, but we want to just consider them quickly. Look there in verse 4. On that day, Oh, let me go back to verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Love that picture. There is he fighting for us. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west. And a very large valley so that 
half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half towards the south. And so one of the first things that will happen one day is, is that this Mount of Olives will actually be divided in two. You see, now how, how can that happen? How can it? Well, this is God. Can we remember who God is? Can we remember from Genesis and Colossians that everything that was created was spoken to being by God? And that Jesus holds this all in his power? Maybe that doesn't do it for you. Maybe you need to think about what God did in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel is up against the sea and the enemies are coming down to them. And God says to Moses, he said, you know, just put forth your staff. And that's going to part. And you'll go through on dry ground. That's the God who returns, right? Or maybe that doesn't do it for you. Maybe we need to think about in the Gospels, where Jesus is asleep on a boat, and there's a storm of such ferocity that the fishermen who spend all their life on the sea are afraid, and they're crying out for their life. And Jesus is asleep on that boat, and he's awakened, and he speaks, and I believe it was a whisper, peace be still. And automatically it goes to calm. That's the feet that hit this mount and cause it to split in two. It's the very presence of God. It's the very person of God. And it's for purpose that he does, because as we would see here, Jesus, Jesus is making way as he returns for a people to escape. And he says there in verse 5, and this actually would be one of the next things, that the people of Jerusalem will escape through a newly formed valley. It says, you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of my mountains will reach to Zeal. Yes, you'll flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And so we see what, what happens is this group that God preserves, they're able to run away because of the way that God made. They're kept safe. They're kept safe by God. That remnant is preserved through the provision of God. And, and child of God, church, I, I just want to remind you, we are no less kept safe by God. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, listen, the Father places you in my hands, and no one can pluck you out. No one. <laughs> this is the same Jesus who later in John, right before he'll go to the cross, he says in chapters 14 through 16, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to live within you. That you might know you are a child of God. You, you, you understand that? God's Spirit living within us, bringing the very life of God to us. So that we can read and understand Scripture. That's part of what we see in those chapters. So that we know that God is for us. We're not abandoned. I'm not an orphan. You're not an orphan as a child of God. You are forever a child of God. Romans chapter 8, Paul takes that thought a little bit further, and he talks about how we have this throne room of God. 
where they're praying, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And how are you welcomed in? In Romans chapter 8, you've received a spirit of adoption as a child of God. And that's why you cry out, Abba, Father. And you enter into the throne room of God, not as a subject of God, but as a child of God, welcomed. Welcomed in the person of Jesus Christ. See, God, God's provision for us, his keeping of us, is, to me, it just eclipses what he does for this, <laughs> this group of this remnant, that God would be so lavish in his grace. And then we see there at the end of verse 5 that he's going to return. The Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. I would just encourage you sometime, take the book of Revelation and just read it. Don't try to figure it out. Just like wade into it like you would the pounding surf and let it pummel you. (laughs) And that's the problem. We go to Revelation and we try to figure it out. And God means for us to be amazed as we look upon Christ in the book of Revelation. And think about what heaven is like with all these hosts worshiping God. And God's saying, I've so worked in your life, you're going to join them someday. Now, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> Bring that day on. That's what my, my pap-pap used to say. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, Right? That's what we ought to be encouraged in here. And so we see this moving on. And we see in verse 6 that Jesus will change the heavens. It says, in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Jesus is actually literally going to change the heavens. For in it will be a unique day, verse 7, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that evening time there will be a light. Well, yeah, there would be. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world, right? In John chapter 1, he goes out and the darkness cannot overcome him. And later on in the Gospel of John, John, Jesus says, listen, I am the light of the world. There'll be no need of this son. That's what the writer of Revelation, that's what John writes. He says, listen, in that day, in Revelation chapter 123, there will be no need for the sun, the moon, the stars, because the glory of God will be the light. Can you, I, I just, just a quick aside, I recently began to work third shift. I appreciate light in a whole different way now. Because it's like pitch dark in some areas where I work at. And a little bit of light goes a long way. But the blazing light of who God is, it just, boom. All other light. And that's what's going to happen on this day. Right? The mountain's going to split. The hosts are going to be there. The light is going to blaze because the glory of God is going to be established. And that's the day by God's grace that we enter into as participants in. That's a day for us, not just for those of Zechariah's day. That's a day for us. What, what an amazing day. And, 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 it, and he goes on further. This is incredible to me as well. Look at verse 8. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half towards the western sea. It'll be in summer as well as in winter. Right down later, look at Revelation 22. 
when we finally get to the end of that book, one of the things that stands out is there's this throne, and out of the throne flows a river of life. Right? But wouldn't that make sense? Do you remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4? He asked her for a drink, and he said, listen, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me to drink, and you would never thirst again. Why? Because he is that. He is the living water. He's the one who gives us satisfaction. He's the one that produces us growth and grace. He's the one that makes us to be able to endure. And so this, this is all part of this glorious picture that's given that our victory is indeed a guarantee. And as we look and further and just look at these last few verses, what we see is the assurance of our victory in verses 9 through 11, this certainty of our victory. In verse 9, it says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be the only one in his name the only one. There was a moment as I've been looking at this passage and I just thought about what happens whenever I look at all that's going on in the world around us. And you hear this president and this dictator and that emperor and that gang leader and whatever the person is who seems to be controlling the the country or the area or the region, and you look at what's happening there, and you just see devastating sin. You see the breakdown. You see dissolution. You see what man as a ruler can bring. That's not what God brings. Look at this verse again. The Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one. Isn't that what your heart yearns for? A union and a peace and a settledness? I don't know if you knew this or not. It will never happen this side of Jesus Christ, apart from Jesus Christ. We need to be careful about where we place our hope. Jesus Christ is the only one worthy of such a trust. He's the only one that can do this because he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the one who took upon sin and paid it fully and destroyed sin and death. He is the only one. And here he is ruling and reigning. And this is what he brings. He brings about a unity. He brings about a peace. And look what happens in verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, as we continue to read, all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimen, south of Jerusalem. Everything's going to be flattened out. Why? So that God might be rightly exalted. 
Jerusalem will be prominent because that's where Jesus will be. He'll set his throne. He'll set his throne there. But, but you see what's happening here is what ought to happen, what needs to happen on a daily basis for us, that we see God as he truly is. He's the only one worthy of our devotion. He's the only one that can deliver this type of promise. He's the only one that can guarantee this type of hope. Going back to Philippians 2, this is the time... It says, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is when all things are right. And here's God putting that out ahead of us, giving us this picture. This is what's to come. Why did he do that? Well, he wanted us to be encouraged because life is discouraging. It can be. Remember, life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. But God reminds us that this life is not the ultimate end reality for us. We have a guaranteed victory in Jesus Christ. There is a day coming when he will return. And he will be rightly exalted. And here is God's grace for you and for me. We can bow our knees today before him and acknowledge him as king of kings and lord of lords. Someday every knee is going to do that. But God has given us an opportunity as ones who trust in him to be redeemed so that we can do that now and forever. That's, that's just totally amazing about God's grace. And so, so we ask we ask this question, and we do this every week, because this is true, what, what should we do? What should we do? Well, we do have this reality of the world that we live in. We have opposition. We have conflict. We have disaster. We have slowness of change, if ever. And if we're looking there, that, that, that's pretty disappointing. But what we need to do is stay confident in Christ. We need to stay confident in Christ. We need to fix our attention on him. We need to be reminded that this is, this is the greater truth, that there is a victory secured by him for those who trust in him. And what, what would that look like? Well, that, that looks like us. I mean, we have to do the, the work of reading God's word, fellowshipping together, calling one another together and encouraging one another on that. But what, what does that look like? I, I, just, I was given an opportunity last fall when my father died to get like a week's glimpse of what this looked like. My dad had suffered a devastating stroke and debilitating. He was unable to speak. Let me take that back. The only things that my dad could do was sing, and he sang old gospel songs because he'd been in a quartet, and old country songs. I took the gospel. I dealt with the country. But, you know, it's, thankfully, he was able to do that. And if you read scripture to him, he would start reading that because he spent a lot of time reading scripture and sharing truth. And, and the this, this stroke was devastating. I mean, it was sudden. There was, no, there was no indication of it. And he tried hard, but he couldn't. He just couldn't recover. He couldn't rehabilitate. And he actually ended up, he was a fall risk. They put him in a chair. They'd leave him at the desk or he would strap him in so he could move about. But how they kept track of dad was he sang. 
I mean, if he got in his wheelchair and he got off and he could make himself move, they knew where he was at because they, they called him Singing John. He would just kind of roam the halls singing hymns. And after he had battled for some time, he ended up going into the hospital and, and, and he actually ended up with a bloodborne disease and we made the decision that we would move him into hospice care. And the day that I talked with Dad about that, because that was my responsibility, I said, Dad, here, here's the deal. We're, we're putting you in hospice care. We're going to make sure you are comfortable. We're going to make sure you're nourished. But we're, we're entrusting you to hospice care. It's just we're not going to battle. We're not going to fight this thing. I said, we're clearing the deck so you can run to Jesus. And... I could never have given my dad a greater gift than that. The tears came down. He, he made it very aware to me. From that point forward, he just had his eyes fixed on the Savior he had spent all his life looking to. The night before he died, as they were tracking him, he was singing, holy, holy, holy all day long, all over the floor of the Lutheran home. You say, holy, holy, holy? Yeah. Holy, holy, holy. All the saints adore you. Casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before you. Who wert and art and forevermore will be. He was focused. He was focused on seeing the king. That's what we need to be. And that's what we need to encourage one another to be. As we do life together, as the church of God, we listen to one another. We love one another. We pray for one another. And we remind one another this is not the ultimate reality. We will be with him. See, our victory is guaranteed by the Lord who restores. And we long for that day. And we ought to encourage each other. I, I, we don't know the number of our days. But let every one of them be one that we set our eyes on Jesus. That's what the writer of Hebrews said. I'm just going to leave you with these verses from Hebrews chapter 11. This is what he said, and it was a words of encouragement. I think we have that on the slide, don't we? Hebrews 11. 12. Thank you. Thank you. And that is correct, Hebrews 12. <laughs> Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance, every weight in the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what we need to be about. And that's what we need to encourage each other to be about. Because we have a certain 
sure victory, guaranteed by the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to do this. I want you to stand with me as we pray. Ethan is going to come back and lead us in some songs. In this time, what I want to encourage you to do is this. Set your eyes on Jesus. Well, let's pray to the words that end first. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for the testimony of your word. Thank you for the certainty, both for this life and the life to come, that for those who trust in Christ, we are, we are secured in you. Our eternity is secured in you. Even as we do the hard work that we've been called to do in recent weeks, we do that knowing it's you at work in us, both to will and to do according to your good pleasure. We do that looking to Jesus. Help us to set aside the things that would distract us and encumber us. Help us to open our lives to one another, to help each other endure and finish. Oh, Lord, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that glorious day that awaits. Where what we do now in part by bowing in worship, we'll do in that day with a heavenly throng, <laughs> worshiping and praising you, the lamb who was slain and yet lives. Thank you, God, for your grace.